0: Welcome back to Crime Pros. This week, I cannot believe that we are already more than halfway through our season of this podcast. And we have so many listeners. This is our second Amped Media show this year. And we have twice as many listeners already to Crime Pros as we had in the entire last season that we worked on. So I'm really excited to share with you today a true crime story that we shared on The Life Inspired. Now, today's guest, since this is a a re-airing, is not with me right now. But he is a law enforcement professional with a degree in criminal justice, and he's working on an additional degree in uh, sociology and just really understands people and the law enforcement industry. You know, he, he has so many years of experience as a patrol officer um, and also experience in the military and uh, fire department, and so just truly understands fighting for justice and what law enforcement means, and also because of that, a lot of the criminal mind. So today we have Officer Logan, and he will be our crime pro for the prom night murders. So imagine it, April 30th, 1989. It's a Sunday morning in Lakeville, Indiana, a tiny little country town. The congregation of the Olive Branch Church, a a local Christian group, has gathered for their regular Sunday services, but they have one problem. There's no pastor. So, this church has had a pastor for three years. His name is Bob Pelly, and he and his wife Dawn live in the church parsonage, which is a house that a church owns usually on their property for a pastor and his family to live in. I only know this because I lived in one with my pastor father growing up. And uh, They live there with Bob's two kids, Jeff and Jackie, as well as Dawn's three daughters, Janelle, Jolene, and Jessica. Now what's a little bit confusing is that different sources that I used for my research for this episode give different ages for all of the kids. So it's a little bit tricky to give exacts, but generally it's accepted that Jeff is the oldest at 17, and Janelle is the youngest at just five. So uh, Bob's two kids, Jeff and Jackie, they're more high school age, and then Janelle, Jolene, and Jessica are younger children. Now on this particular Sunday, April 30th, one of the local church children, her name's Stephanie, and she's around Janelle's age, so she went over to play with the girls before church most Sundays. But this day, she found that all of the doors were shut and locked, And the curtains uh, were all drawn to the house, so no one could see in. Um, Obviously, the church members thought this was a little bit weird, but they thought maybe the family had slept in. They were still getting ready. Um, And just because the pastor hasn't shown up yet, I mean, he lives on the church property. That doesn't mean he's not going to be there in time for the service to start. But... The time comes and goes and his family never shows up. And this is a congregation of less than 100 people. So when you have a family of seven missing, including the pastor, people start to suspect something. So some of the church members go over to the house. They see just like little Stephanie did that the doors are locked, the windows are closed. Um, and they decide that they're going to go in and just wake up the family, make sure everyone's okay. And again, this is another point of uh, difficulty in the research that there's a little bit of discrepancy in what happened next, but someone got a key from one of the church employees that somehow had a key to the parsonage, which is a little suspicious in and of itself, I think, but It's unclear if they went through the back door and then unlocked the front door, or if they were able to use the key to get in the front door, but eventually one of the men in the congregation is able to get in the front door and the first thing that he sees is Pastor Bob Pelly laying on the ground and he's been shot in the face. There's blood everywhere and Bob is obviously deceased. Now this is where we have to bring you in Logan because I think if I found this crime scene I would just stop there. Um, but the church members decided not just one person but many people were going to go into the house
1: yeah, that's not good at all.
0: Does that create a problem for, <laughs> I mean, the investigators?
1: Yes. Yeah, so I don't know what that small of a town back in those days, um, 1989, I believe it was. I don't mm-hmm. know what they would have had for DNA, but in today's society, today's world, if, uh, if for example, if, if me as a, a patrol officer, if I was to walk in and see that, uh, we would do, and we're trained to be um, the least intrusive possible. So we, what we would do is we would clear the house and we would look for any survivors. And that would be stepping over things of importance. That would be very meticulously not touching anything, putting gloves on. Um, you send a bunch of c- civilians into a house to look at a crime scene. You're to contaminate all of the DNA. And when you yeah. get more than one or two uh, DNA hits on something, it comes back as inconclusive, and you can't use
0: it in court. So it's really bad. Okay, it's interesting that you say this. That's definitely something to keep in mind as we get into uh, this story and the investigation. But let's go back to that Sunday morning now. So the church members decide to go into the house. They see their their pastor bob pelly he is dead on the ground in the hallway right off the front door of the parsonage they continue to go into the house they go through the dining room and the kitchen into the basement and what's really creepy for me about this is as i read up on the just kind of layout of the house and i actually listened to another podcast about it um, i watched an episode of 48 hours about it It reminded me a lot of the parsonage I grew up in, so I very clearly in my head am visualizing how they had to go through this house, but um, off the kitchen, there's a stairway down into the basement, and when they go into the basement there, they also find Dawn, uh, Bob's wife, as well as two of her three daughters, Janelle and Jolene. All three have also been shot dead, and the two girls actually died in Don's arms. And it's a tragic scene. The church members are very shaken, and this is the point when they decide to leave the house without looking any further into it um, and call the police. So after seeing such a, a, a tragic scene, they did decide to do the right thing, finally got the professionals involved. So the police are called in, and the first thing that the witnesses now that are there at the the house are telling them is that there's still three kids missing. Jeff, Jackie, and Jessica, none of them are there. And so the house is searched. There's no trace of these kids. So now you have police officers that are trying to figure out where are these these three children all under the age of 18 while also uh, they're starting to search the house. And they turn up a few things that they think might be a little bit suspicious. Um, the first is that there is popped popcorn in the kitchen. So they note that it looks like there was at least the intention of um, some sort of snack that was about to happen when the crime took place. They also note that there's men's clothing in the washing machine, which is wet. So they, it was mid-cycled, at least they think it might've been mid-cycle when when the crime was committed. And also church members tell the police officers that Bob keeps a shotgun on the wall in his bedroom. It was actually a gun that was given to Jeff when his mother passed away. Um, She died of natural causes years before. But when the family moved from Florida to Indiana, Jeff had actually attempted, or at least threatened suicide with the shotgun. So his dad had taken it from him until he was an adult and he would give it back um, since it was his mother's before. But so the church members shared this story with the police officers. And one of the first things that the investigators noticed is that there is no gun in the house. So now, we have at least a missing gun, but they're thinking possibly a potential uh, murder weapon. So as they're combing the house and trying to find evidence of what might've happened, I was a little bit surprised about this too. They were able to pull some blood and DNA uh, off of uh, different parts of the house. The house itself isn't actually that shaken up outside of the areas where the bodies were found, where there's a lot of blood splatter, but they're able to collect some of that evidence for processing. And I was a little bit surprised that in 89, they had the ability to test for DNA like that.
1: Yeah, that was right when they were starting some of that technology. Nothing like it is today though.
0: So as they're doing this and they have other officers out trying to find the missing children, they're worried that this might have been a kidnapping, but their fears are settled pretty quickly when Jessica actually shows up at the house. She has been at a sleepover with one of her friends. And the, the mother of the friend that she was staying over with uh, was a little late getting Jessica back for church that morning. So when she pulls up to the church slash house property that it's all on, Obviously, they see the crime tape, the police officers, the crowd outside, and they know that something's wrong. And actually, the police tell Jessica's friend's mom what happened, and this poor woman has to communicate to Jessica that her two sisters, her mother and her stepdad, um, have all been murdered. But luckily, Jessica is able to share with the police that they don't need to keep searching for Jackie and Jeff because she knows where they are. Jackie had actually spent the weekend at a nearby college for a church camp. And Jeff is at Six Flags Great America as part of the after prom activities because the local prom had been the night before. So police now know where all three of the missing children are. They know that this was not a kidnapping, um, but they obviously now have to figure out what did happen? So they they go to retrieve Jackie and Jeff, and when they get to Jackie, you know she's treated as an orphan and a victim, and treated with a lot of compassion. And um, the police officers have to tell her what happened. But when they get to Jeff, he's not as much treated as a victim as he is a person of interest, because you see, Great America, the amusement park that Jeff was at, is several hours from the the Pelly House in Lakeview, Indiana. And while the police are on their way to get Jeff, they're learning a little bit about what had been happening in the house in the days and weeks leading up to this murder. And what they've learned is that Jeff had been in a really serious fight with his dad about prom. It wasn't uncommon for the two to fight again, especially over the last three years since they moved from Florida to Indiana. Jeff was not a fan, but also in the week leading up to this incident, Jeff had stolen some CDs, I guess, from a family friend, and it was a big ordeal. Um, Actually, one of the investigators that was taking the lead on the murder case had been involved in the case of finding out that Jeff had vandalized, or at least broken into, and then possibly vandalized and stolen these CDs from this family friend. So they're very well connected with the family, um, but they knew that Jeff and his dad had been in a fight about this. And actually Jeff had been told that he, what, at first he was told he wasn't even allowed to go to prom, but his His dad and his stepmom really liked Jeff's girlfriend. They wanted him to be able to have a high school experience. So the punishment that they had settled on was that he was not going to be allowed to drive himself to the prom. And he also wasn't going to be allowed to go to Six Flags the next day. His parents were going to take him to the prom. They were going to drop him off and then they were going to pick him and his date up uh, after the events. And he was not actually supposed to be at Six Flags. so. With so many church members knowing this story, with so many of the community members in this tiny town knowing this, and also with Jeff's own stepsister telling them uh, what she knew about the family dynamic, they're automatically a little bit suspicious It even went so far as some of the church members knew that Bob had removed some kind of part from Jeff's car so that it wasn't drivable, but his car was not at the parsonage. So they're assuming that he had not only taken it to prom, but then had also taken it to Six Flags. So when the police officers arrive uh, at Great America, they arrest Jeff and his girl. Well, I take that back. You know this better than I do. If someone is detained does that mean they're arrested or can you be detained without actually being arrested?
1: So you can be considered detained without being arrested. Uh, if I approach you on the street and you feel either by the fact that there's three police officers around you or I say something that otherwise feel makes you feel like you're not free to leave, you are considered detained under eyes of the law. So anything you say during that would technically need to be Mirandized if if they could prove that you felt that you were detained
0: okay so i guess a better way to say it would be that jeff and his girlfriend were detained at the six flag security office by police in the town that the amusement park was in near chicago um and they were held there and not even really told what was going on they were told that there had been an accident that something had happened and that Jeff's grandparents were on their way to come get him, but nobody actually even told Jeff that his family had been murdered. But what's really wild here is that his girlfriend actually had a suspicion and asked the police if something had happened to Jeff's family because hours before the police had showed up, Jeff had looked at her very seriously and told her that something was wrong, that something had happened to his dad and his family. And had had a very solemn few minutes before returning back to his, you know, joyful, like messing around at an amusement park self. So she actually brings up it. Is there something wrong with his family? And that's when the police take him to a local police station and interrogate him. And then there they inform him that his family has been murdered. Hmm. Now, Jeff didn't know that his sister was still alive. That's one thing important to keep in mind during this. He, as far as he knew, every member of his family was dead. His dad, his stepmom, his three stepsisters, and his biological sister. He did not know that his sister and one of his stepsisters were still alive. And yet he had no remorse when they were talking to him, and the investigators noted how flat and monotone he was talking about his family who, as far as he knew, were all deceased. They talk about some of the assumptions he made, talking about uh, people in his dad's past and how people might have come for him, and investigators automatically flagged this as a red flag and suspected that it might be an indication of a guilty conscience. But I kind of wanted to ask you here what your thoughts on this are too, because I am obviously not a professional when it comes to interrogation, but I listen to a lot of true crime podcasts, and it seems like no matter what someone does when they're being interrogated, it's always taken as suspicious. Like, one big thing that I hear a lot is if you're ever asked to take a polygraph test, you should say no, because if you get a false positive out of it, like it indicates that you're lying um that's automatically a red flag and apparently that happens quite a bit but also then if you say no i'm not going to take a polygraph that's suspicious so i feel like there's a lot of situations like that so do you think that there's any way that jeff was kind of like damned if he did damned if he didn't with all the emotion that they were expecting him to show
1: yeah so i mean that is that's odd uh, especially at 17. But I guess if you had a rough family life, I mean, there's no telling what kind of relationship he had with his father. Uh, it would not be the first time that I've told someone that their family's dead or someone in their family has died and they did not react just because of that toxic and, uh, you know, uh, hatred filled home life. Um, would it be a red flag? Probably. Um, but it, also could just be because he really didn't care about his dad due to how the, the relationship dynamic was and yet uh, polygraphs those yeah those are not fun you have to take those when you become a cop and oh uh, it's it's scary because uh, there's people that go in and well claim they tell the truth I don't guess I have a way to prove otherwise but it'll come back and say that they showed deceit which is what it, it doesn't say you're lying it says it shows uh, indicators of deceit and uh over something that they told the truth on. So yeah, I I could see where either way you you go with that, it could be um, the best thing to do is just ask for an attorney if you're innocent um, and just not talk.
0: Interesting. Well, they have flagged this at Jeff and now they're trying to interrogate him and get more information about why was he even at Six Flags? Where was his car? All of this, but back at the parsonage, Uh, investigators are continuing to comb the scene, right? They're taking statements from members of the congregation. We also have to remember that, again, tiny town, tiny church, a lot of the other teenagers who are there on the scene that day for the church service were just with Jeff the night before at prom and were even in the house the night before because Bob was also an amateur photographer. He had a really nice camera. So he had offered to all of the members of the church that if anyone wanted, you know, prom photos taken ahead of time, they could come over and and he would take photos of any of the teens and their dates. So there were actually a lot of Uh, jeff's friends a lot of church people who were there so they're getting statements they're looking for more evidence they realize that the clothes that are in the wash are jeff's and some of the the individuals who are now witnesses who had been at the the crime scene the day before who had been there having their photos taken by bob indicated that they were the clothes that jeff probably was wearing while everyone was at the house the night before. And this was, I mean, it, hap- it went on for several hours on Saturday afternoon and evening, but the last group of people left around 5 p.m. Um, so all afternoon people are coming in and out of the house. It's pretty heavy traffic. So a lot of people are able to identify what Jeff was wearing. Mm-hmm. And they realized that the clothes that are in the wash they think, were what Jeff was wearing that day. Uh, they also were able to identify the popcorn that was found in the kitchen as Bob's evening popcorn. He had a big thing. He, everyone knew that he made popcorn after dinner every single night, and he would actually save a tiny, tiny amount of of the popcorn he made for the next night so that he could eat it while he was making that night's popcorn. <laughs> um, so they... This is just like a commonly known fact. Anyone who had been at the Pelly house for dinner knew that after dinner, Bob made popcorn. So now there is indication that Bob was alive for dinner and after. Also at the crime scene, they're analyzing some of the blood splatter. And what they realize is that based on the way that Bob's body is found and the way that the blood has splattered, he was shot from his or Jeff's bedroom area. So the way that the parsonage is set up, if you can just imagine it, there's the front door and then This is again where I wish some of the reporting was more clear. I don't know if it's just like over time things have gotten confused or because so many people are reporting on it. There's just some differences in the details that are reported. So some reports say that the hallway to the bedrooms was on the right side of the entrance, and others say that it was on the left side of the entrance, and I've tried to look at photos of the crime scene and even watch some of the videos but you know sometimes like cameras flip things and you just can't really tell so for the purposes of this based on what i was looking at earlier today we're going to say that the hallway is on the right side Um, either way there's a hallway right off the front door so imagine it right on the right-hand side as soon as you walk in. And there's bedrooms lining this hall, and at the very end of the hall, there's two bedrooms facing each other. One would be Bob and Dawn's, and the other one would be Jeff's. And based on how the blood is splattered and how Bob's body fell, they're assuming that someone was between those two bedrooms when they shot Bob. Now, What's interesting about this is that, you know, before one of their suspicions had been maybe this was a kidnapping. So the intruder theory is already in everyone's head, but it would be difficult for an intruder to get that far into the house and then surprise Bob by shooting him. So now they're thinking that whoever was in the house was likely welcomed there and probably took the gun that would have been hanging in that bedroom on the wall and used that to shoot bob and then likely also the girls downstairs Um, so they've started to put together a little bit of a theory they think that bob was shot first that possibly dawn was already downstairs or was somewhere Uh, maybe in the kitchen and heard the shots and went downstairs to try and protect her girls. And that then they were followed down the stairs by whoever shot Bob. And then that's where they were murdered after. Um, This also lines up with the fact that both of the girls were found in Dawn's arms. It's likely that she was trying to protect them uh, while they were fleeing. So they're starting to analyze all of this back at the crime scene. Meanwhile, back uh, near Great America, near Chicago. Jeff is telling the investigators that his dad actually forgave him for uh, breaking and entering and vandalism and the crime that he committed with the CDs and that also the family friend that he had stolen the CDs from had forgiven him and so Bob had decided to allow him to go to uh, the prom. Now they aren't able to actually corroborate this story with any of the other witnesses who were at the Pelly's house the day before. All of Jeff's friends say that up until Jeff showed up with his car they all thought that his parents were going to be driving him to the prom. But his sister Jackie said that that was actually in his dad's nature, that he was very stern and very strict, but that in the end he wanted the best for his kids and he wanted them to be able to enjoy life and that oftentimes punishments would be taken back before they could ever even actually happen. So Jackie says this is in line with her dad's character. There is no other witness to for giving Jeff, but at least that's the story that he's telling for now. And he says, that's why he was not at the house. That's why his parents never dropped him off at prom. He was allowed to drive his own car. He was allowed to go to Great America the next morning and that's why he was away. So while these investigators are interviewing Jeff, again, going back to Indiana, they're able to start to piece together a timeline of what happened the night before based on witness testimony around five o'clock the evening before so on the 29th of april the last of the church members that were at the house for photos that day lapsed. so so we know that the pelis were alive up until 5 p.m Now, a few minutes later, one of Jeff's friends who had been at the Pelly household earlier drove past the house again. He had come earlier for photos, realized he left something, I think it was his corsage, back at the house, had to go home, and then on his way to his date's house, he passed the Pelly house, right? So he's not exactly sure what time this is, but he knew it was between 5 o'clock and 5.30, and he says that Jeff's car was still in the driveway then at 5 30 some other church members show up at the pelly house to have bob take their photos and when they get there all the doors are locked the curtains are closed and jeff's car is not there so five o'clock we know that all the pelis are alive jeff is at home then we know a few minutes later sometime between 5 and 5 30 jeff's car is in the driveway we know by 5:30. Jeff is gone, his car is gone, and the house is completely locked down. So we're assuming that by 5.30, the Pelles are dead, or at the very least, the murderer is inside, and Jeff is gone. Um, There's also some sources that suggest that around 520, Jeff may have had an encounter with a gas station attendant who remembered that he needed to fix something on his car so he had pulled into a local gas station down the street from his parents' house. So it's possible then that if the family was murdered while Jeff was home, It would have had to have happened between even 5 and 5 20 pm at the very latest 5 30. so at this point police are thinking that jeff has to be their number one suspect and they are saying that this 30 minute time frame is enough for jeff to murder his family because he's mad about uh, not being allowed to drive himself to the prom or go to the after prom activities so he murders his family cleans his entire self gets in his car drives down the street to the gas station attendant and then doesn't actually fix his car because remember bob had taken a piece off so that jeff couldn't drive his car and we do know that jeff didn't have that piece back on his car earlier in the day because jeff was picked up at work by bob earlier that saturday around noon from local mcdonald's so what we're thinking is, or at least what the officers are thinking, is that when he went to the gas station, he was putting the piece back on his car. Oh, that's a little bit murky. But the big picture is he had 20 minutes to murder four people, clean himself up, and leave. Your thoughts. Is yeah. that doable?
1: No. And one thing... uh one thing that stands out to me, and I don't know if your research has uncovered it from what I looked at it last night, uh, in reference to the 20-minute time frame, most people that own a gun keep a lot of ammunition in the house, right? At mm-hmm. least at least several boxes, considerable amount. Right. He would have had to have not only picked up all the shells that he fired and hid them with a gun, but he would have had to remove all unspent shotgun shells in the house that would have come from the same ammunition manufacturer that they could compare the wadding to so when you shoot a shotgun shell uh, a plastic wadding comes out and that's what helps the, the the balls or the slug come out of the the shotgun yeah and you could compare that to a box or multiple boxes of ammunition because most people buy the same brand and you could say that that was consistent with what was found in the house nothing i could found said that they were able to make any of those um Comparisons, Right, okay. And not only that, but if you were to murder people in close proximity with a shotgun, you would receive blood splatter and possibly bone fragments <laughs> uh, bouncing off the walls back at you. Yeah. If he washed his clothes, how did he not leave any bloody fingerprints anywhere on the washing machine or around the house?
0: Yes, okay. So I'm glad that you bring that up because as much as the police want to say this is our time frame. this is what happened, this is what Jeff did. The prosecutors, the local DA, is saying all the things that you're saying. He's saying there's no way that in 20 minutes, this 17-year-old child had the opportunity to murder four people, including his grown father, um, and then hide the murder weapon, get uh, clean himself up because remember he went to prom after this and when he showed up his date and his friends and his friend's parents all noted that he wasn't dressed in his tux yet so the clothes that they're thinking that they found in the wash that he may have already been wearing or something people are saying he had not changed into his tux by the time that he got to uh, his date's house um so no just no way the clothes Uh, the murder weapon is still missing but exactly as you said they're not finding any of the casings also Jackie and Jeff both told police that Bob got rid of all the guns in his house a week earlier because he was worried that uh, as he was punishing Jeff with this prom punishment that Jeff may try to commit suicide again so Jackie and Jeff both testified that he had gotten rid of guns. Jessica, who was nine around this time, says that that's not true. But a lot of people since then have speculated that her parents probably didn't talk to her about what they were doing with weapons in the house because she was nine years old. Um, right. So they're also saying they're, that gun was probably never even in the house, so where would Jeff have gotten a gun? Also, Jackie is agreeing with Jeff and saying that she can't imagine Bob not allowing his son to go to the after prom activities. So there's no motive for Jeff to do this either if we're to believe Jackie and what she says about Bob's compassion. So ultimately, as much as the police want to name Jeff their number one suspect, the prosecutors refuse to take anything to court. And that's kind of where everything goes cold, just a couple of weeks after. After this incident, you know, the Pellys have their a family funeral at the church where Bob was the pastor next door to the home they were murdered in. The church ends up renovating the parsonage. They get a new pastor, new people living in the house. All of the remaining P- Peli kids are split up between different family members and all grow up to live relatively normal lives. Jeff even moves to Florida um, where we know he wanted to live all along and he gets married and has a child and uh, down the road even gets convicted of fraud at one point, um, which is huh. another story for another day. But so all of, all of the murder, the investigation, this is all 1989. Fast forward to 2002, right? A newly elected prosecutor decides that he wants to look back into the Pelly case and he thinks that he has enough to arrest and prosecute Jeff Pelly for the murder of his family. There is a little bit of new evidence during this time, including a witness testimony from Jessica, who now goes by Jesse. And she says that when she was 15, she went to stay with Jeff and his wife for a little bit. And that during that time, Jeff asked her, uh, who do you think actually killed our parents? And that she said that she thought it was Bob who had murdered uh, her mother and her two sisters and then committed suicide. And Jeff just let it go and... I'm a little bit confused about this because um, the police informed Jesse later down the line that that's not possible, you know, like Bob could not have killed himself with the shotgun, the blood splatter. That
1: actually just brought up a good, or an idea to me. Um, it wouldn't be uncommon back in the day for families, uh, especially religious ones in a small town, to be afraid of uh, public image. Uh, mm. What if one of those churchgoers that went in there to look at the scene didn't want him to be remembered that way and took the gun out? Oh.
0: I hadn't thought about that.
1: That would uh, that would not be impossible. That wouldn't be the weirdest thing. Uh, I work in a high crime area, and a lot of times uh, if we don't get there fast enough and there's a large crowd, the, the crowd will get rid of the murder weapon. Or uh, oh. they'll get rid of the victim's weapon, so it'll look like cold-blooded homicide. Where the other guy actually may have been firing back.
0: That is interesting. Okay, so I wasn't planning to go into this in this episode, but you bring up good point. So actually, we today do know where the gun is and where it was during the murders, and it was not in the house. Um, huh. again, another story for another day, but. There are witnesses that have since uh, confirmed that Bob did remove it from the home. If you If anyone out there wants to learn more about what happened after all of this, you can check out Counterclock on Spotify. It's by Audio Chuck. It's a really good. they just did their, I think third season and it was all about this case. Um, but, we do know that the gun wasn't there, but that is an interesting point to bring up. And I hadn't actually thought it through. Um, but Jessie had always believed that that was what had happened. And the police later informed her that it wasn't. And then I guess allowed her to testify that about this encounter with her brother as some sort of evidence that he had committed a murder because he asked her who she thought had killed her family. And what The prosecutors were saying... It's not even circumstantial. I know, I don't... What I read that the prosecutors were arguing was that Jeff would have 100% known that Bob didn't kill himself because he would have been privy to more information about the case, I guess, and that he didn't defend his father. So they were saying that this was some kind of... I don't know. It it seemed really weak to me. I don't know. Yeah, Um, it's it's not... uh,
1: None of this the the court of all of this has just got me really confused as to how this is still going i prosecutors are elected so a lot of times they'll do things that they think will try to get them re-elected but i just mm, a lot of this just
0: doesn't add up it doesn't and as much as this new testimony from jesse uh, supports uh, somehow the case against her brother there's also new problems with the case and Again, another story for another day. But they're finding evidence that possibly the clothes that were found in the washing machine were placed there because they were able to find the receipt for the purchase of the jeans. Uh, Also, the clothes themselves were placed in a grocery bag when they were collected as evidence and stored in a grocery bag for decades. Can't do
1: that either. No. No. I don't know if, if you were aware of this or not, but when you uh, recover any sort of evidence that's wet, uh, you have to dry it, and then it has to be placed in a paper bag. Otherwise, the DNA or anything in it will break down, and it'll become uh, like mildew or moldy.
0: Okay, that is actually interesting to me because, I mean, I don't know that much about the 80s, I guess, but I guess a grocery bag could be be a paper bag so maybe that's reasonable but i would think they would need a more professional bag than something you got at the like it was literally a bag that they found in the house yeah a grocery store logo
1: yeah we use so i had a i handled shooting a couple weeks ago and uh the process for us is to we have a drying locker that's uh, secured with a padlock. You put your evidence, uh, in this case it was bloody clothes that were cut off, in there. And they dry. I let them dry for about three weeks. Um, Mm. And then I used a sterile I guess it wouldn't be completely sterile but a packaged paper bag that could have no other DNA inside of it. And then you place your items in there, and you seal it with evidence tape, you staple it, and then uh, you you again lock it behind another locker. So I I cannot imagine taking a bag out of someone's house on a homicide and putting evidence in it.
0: Listen, if we had the time to go over all of the problems in this case, this is just (laughs) scratching the surface, right? I listened to a 20-episode podcast season about this one case, and... it gets me going but long story short in 2006 after a very controversial trial with his two sisters divided on the belief of whether he was innocent or guilty Jeff is convicted of four counts of murder and sentenced to over 160 years in Indiana prison what are your thoughts I don't think that the evidence supports that
1: conviction. I wasn't there, I can't, uh, it sounds like the police officers did their job to try and show evidence that it was there. And it sounds like the prosecutor did their job and saying the original prosecutor did their job and saying that uh, I I acknowledge your evidence, but I don't think that that supports, you know, murder one or whatever they charged him with. It sounds to me like it was a a political move many years later that, that made this occur. And I don't agree with anything political in the criminal justice system because it sometimes pushes facts and common sense to the side to push an agenda, if that makes sense.
0: It's interesting that you say that this seems like a political move because as of the recording of this podcast, Jeff is still in the process of appealing his uh, conviction. He is represented right now by a center for wrongful conviction and his attorneys argue that this entire uh, prosecution, all of this trial, the efforts against him, that it's all political maneuvering to get a prosecutor reelected. And uh, if we, like I said, if we had the time to go into this story, there is so much more that needs to be said and done there is a past of bob pelly that no one in the town even knew about until very recently there's a family divided over this case there's evidence pointing to actual living suspects in other states who knew the pelly family but none of it is ever considered and like i said today Jeff is still appealing his case. Now, I am not a legal expert. And I also want to acknowledge that I think every detective, prosecutor, I know everyone does their best job. Everyone can be wrong at some point. We're human. We make mistakes. Sometimes the evidence points us in one direction and later we learn something else. But the entire point of true crime is to tell people what's happening, enlighten people to the facts, and hope that as we continue to learn more and more, the truth comes to light and justice is actually served. So no matter what our opinions are on the Jeff Pelley case, if you want to learn more, you can go to justiceforjeff.com where Jeff's family and attorneys have set up their beliefs about what's happening. You can also search the prom night murders or the Pelly family murders on any search engine, and you'll get unbiased factual reports from a number of news outlets and media. I still don't know 100% what I believe, but I think that the case against Jeff Pelly was rushed and circumstantial. And needs to be revisited. So circumstantial at best.
1: At I can best. tell you that in today's world if I submitted this case as a I'm not a lead homicide investigator, but if a lead homicide <laughs> investigator was to submit this case, they would be laughed out of court.
0: This is our story for the day. I hate to leave everyone hanging. If you want to learn more about Just Pass, make sure that you give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts so that we know that this is a a story that you're interested in digging deeper into. So, Officer Logan, as we come off of your... I think you told me earlier you don't listen to True Crime Podcasts. So as we come off of your first True Crime story, what are you thinking? Where is your head at?
1: i I see the fun behind this. It's kind of cool to to dive into a case that you're not actually investigating and uh see what you can find on it. um I can definitely see the uh the where people like doing this
0: yeah yeah the the most fun episodes to listen to are the ones that do have some kind of ruling um the ones that are right. just open and and like cold cases those drive me crazy but I think that's the point right like we want to find the truth and there's so many TV shows that are like cold case files and things like that that have yeah. 20, 30 years after a crime is committed, they help to find the perpetrator. So it's definitely um an interesting little genre. It's cool. Do you have anything that you want to share with the people before we sign off for the day?
1: Um, other than, uh, when you're looking into this stuff, it's, it's always the facts that matter. And a lot of people get caught up between the facts and how other people may feel about something. And when you're looking at anything from a law enforcement lens, it's just really important to any hearsay, any drama or any personal feelings and, and just look at those, those cold, hard facts. And that's, that'll usually lead you in the right direction.
0: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Officer Logan, for your analysis of today's case and helping us to get through this story and make sense of it all. Thank you for listening to Crime Pros. Make sure to download this episode and subscribe to the show. If you like our true crime stories, head over to Apple Podcasts and let us know with a five-star review. Crime Pros is hosted by Jace Lucas and is a production of Amped Media. This week's guest is Officer Logan. Connect with us on Instagram and Facebook at Amped Media Official. See you next week for a new true crime story with a new true crime pro.